Welcome to Greatness, where the world's leading thinkers share their ideas about how to create greatness, great leaders, great teams, and great organizations. Why be good when you can be great? This is Gretchen Gagel with Greatness Consulting. I'm so thrilled today to be here with Linda Holbush, the author of The Agile Organization. I am a huge, huge admirer of Linda's. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm delighted to be with you, Gretchen. Thank you for the intro. And um, the wonders of modern technology, you're sitting in England and I'm sitting in Australia and we're both bemoaning the fact that we have gloomy weather going on right now, but it's so great to connect from so far away. So Linda, your book, The Agile Organization, which is actually out in two editions now, you have your second edition out. When I read this book, I was just struck by the multifaceted approach that you took to thinking about agile organizations. And, and this podcast is all about thinking about greatness, you know, great leaders, great teams, great organizations. So first of all, what is great in your mind when when you think about thinking about agile organizations? What does great look like? Well, I suppose if we start with outcomes, uh, great for me is um, what is achieved by somebody or some group of people that makes a really positive impact on stakeholders you know whether those stakeholders are shareholders employees the local community society at at large those outcomes in some ways determine what greatness looks like I think if the outcomes are same old same old um, unless it's absolutely outstanding inevitably it's got seeds of decline built in. Whereas if the outcomes are actually relevant, specific to the needs of those groups, driven and delivered with determination and have innovation built in, then it's whatever has enabled those outstanding outcomes to be delivered that I would determine to be great. And in many ways, I think greatness is delivered through people who've got a combination of characteristics and behaviours that actually inspire other people, help achieve effective decisions and make things happen in both a timely and a proactive way. And I think those kinds of aptitudes and characteristics are relatively rare, but some of them, I think, can be learned. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Wow. I love how you talk about relevant outcomes relative to these multiple stakeholders. And do you feel like most organizations do a great job of thinking about all those stakeholders from the, you know, from the obvious, well, we have shareholders or private equity investors to societal community, you know, what those more tangential share uh, stakeholders are? No, I don't think many leaders of organizations um, do focus the energies of 
themselves or their executive team or the organization as a whole on a range of stakeholders. I think typically top leaders, if they've been trained at all, um, have been encouraged in the past at least to focus very much on the needs of only one group, which would be shareholders or public um, who are funding the services. And um, in that sense, I think we've ended up with a very one-dimensional view about what success looks like. And it drives in so many ways um, decisions that follow that are ultimately counterproductive to even that primary group of stakeholders. So, for instance, if you take a shareholder value perspective exclusively, uh, typically the kinds of decisions you'll make as a leader at the top of an organization are to increase share value and dividends paid to, to shareholders. And you do that the easiest way possible by cutting costs, by uh, shedding head, head count, um, by adopting lean methodologies with none of the accompanying values that underpin how to get the best out of them. And ultimately, you lose the talent that you probably need to be able to secure sustainable value for shareholders. And similarly, if you approach public service from the point of view of, well, we are um, using funding supplied by the public to justify doing things only in one way, um, as if your vocational mission, if you like, justifies um, focusing only, again, on saving costs in terms of benefits um, to the needy or whatever, um, then the likelihood is that ultimately your decisions will come back to bite you. So I think it's rare um, for people to be able to focus on a range of stakeholders and know how to adjust priorities or integrate other priorities into your primary priority. But I believe this is the way to go in today's world where increasingly with climate change, with pushback against um, what we would now think of as probably um, unethical practices, paying suppliers um, unmanageably small amounts to deliver big chunks of public service. Those kinds of um, decisions that have been driven by a one-dimensional perspective are now coming back in the form of protest. Um, things that have been accepted for decades are no longer accepted. So it's almost license to operate will depend on taking a wider view about who our stakeholders are and how we best serve them. It's so interesting you say that because um, social license is something that um, the Australian Pipeline and Gas Association, I'm doing a program with them and, and their leader just wrote an article on social license mm. and and the need to focus on that. And just today, literally just today, teaching leading a leadership in ethics, uh, leading with integrity at the University of Denver um, remotely in their MBA program. We had readings from Friedman who pushes that profits are the only thing, right? That's the number one thing you should focus upon versus mm. Carol um, talking about corporate social responsibility and what does it mean to be a good corporate citizenship uh, citizen. So mm. I, I'm 
I do agree with you, Linda. I think there's a little bit of a, I see a movement in that direction of people thinking more holistically about stakeholders and greatness as you defined it and outcomes and satisfying all those stakeholders. And you also mentioned leaders, leaders and their traits and behaviors. What makes a great leader in your mind? Well, to link those two um, notions, I think um, a great leader is someone who can operate short term uh, with the longer term in mind. It doesn't mean that they have to have a definitive plan for the next 50 years or um, you know, a vision that is so encapsulated in formal projects that um, there is no room to manoeuvre. But at least there is a sense of what's going to be important um, over time, what the organisation stands for, etc. And I think great leaders, for me, are ones who can both pursue, um, going back to, is it one set of stakeholders we look after, like shareholders, or is it a range who can pursue even one set of stakeholder needs by taking also into account others? I think it's um, a principle that John Kay refers to as obliquity. In other words, if you focus intently um, and intensely on one set of stakeholders, you can also obliquely benefit others if you want to. Um, The challenge is thinking about that in a context which is constantly changing. Um, So, for instance, if you focus intensely on customer needs, you're more likely to invest in training and development for your people um, so that they're empowered to act. You're more likely to encourage information sharing and have systems and processes that support that. You're more likely to be able to move swiftly as the market changes. And if you do all that on the basis that you're looking ahead to know that customers are always going to be important to you, and uh, by the way, customer needs are changing too, and customers' perception of what good looks like is changing, Um, then you're more likely to be able to be flexible uh, than if you focus only on shareholder value, which is largely to do with very short-term decision-making, almost quarter by quarter, um, that's geared to increasing the share dividend uh, to keep yourself in a job as chief executive. So great leaders, I think, have the ability to both stand back, to do, you know, a bit of... um, what Laurie calls uh, adaptive leadership, Heifetz and Laurie, who can stand on the balcony and get the whole view of the playing field before them, whilst also being able to move some of the parts and adjust some of the processes to achieve the longer-term view through the short term. And it's that ability to anticipate from a perspective that is holistic in a way, that looks at how things are interdependent and how some of those interdependent parts are changing and influencing others who can get slightly ahead of the game and bring people with them and by implication, therefore, cope with so much of the ambiguity that's out there. Um, Ambiguity in every sense because, you know, the more you're trying to do something with determination in the short term, the likelihood is that you're going to get interrupted by disruptors. Um, You might not notice what's happening, whereas if you can look around and see what's coming around the corner 
as best you can and talk with the right people, uh, influence others to share intelligence both within and beyond the organisation, the more likely it is you're going to be prepared to make the moves at the right time. And that allows you to make short-term decisions that are as I say, richer because they've got more flexibility built in. It allows you to iterate more and experiment more whilst also delivering effectively in the short term, getting the customer feedback cycle. So it's not 10 years down the track, the customers get a nice new product. They're getting it all the way through. And so, you know, that kind of ability to, in a sense, say ambiguity and change are not bad things. They're part and parcel of the dynamic context we're now in. You know, let's live with that and let's learn to grow some of the skills that we need to cope with it. You know, part of that is resilience, you know, recognising that we're not going to get it right every time. So we need to be able to learn from it, bounce back from it, but remain focused on something important. So great leaders for me are those who can inspire and corral people into a genuine sense of shared purpose. And I mean that in a non-paternalistic sort of way, really, because I think there's been the risk over many years that getting people to buy into the culture, buy into the shared purpose, has required people to um, almost give up a lot of their, their own autonomy, their own responsibility for thinking these things through um, in exchange for a, a wage, a salary. I think now in today's world, it's much more important to be able to engage with people as adults to recognise that um, even if it's only at some small level, we do have a common purpose, which is whatever, a higher purpose, hopefully, to serve somebody in some way or some great cause, preferably, that we can all buy into and that justifies why we're therefore willing to collaborate when previously we might have held on to our own knowledge, to learn new things when previously we might have wanted to dig our heels in to protect our patch, Um, to collaborate on things even with customers and competitors when previously we might have kept them at arm's length. You know, so there's a, um, a degree to which... Great leaders are able to unite people, but not in some sort of cultish way around what we're here to do in a way that enables people to think, hmm, yeah, I might go along with that. I might be willing to change the habits of a lifetime and and start to work with people differently and, and to reach out and to volunteer information to my colleagues in another department that I might previously have seen as rivals. You, you brought up a really interesting point, Linda, about um, we're not going to get it right all the time. And I've been reading quite a bit about psychological safety, uh, the Google Aristotle Project, which is you know describing great teams and, and how important psychological safety is that we um, and, you know, when we talk, you and Chris Worley and others thinking about agility, agility, this ability to fail fast, to try new things and learn from it and move on to the next thing. What do, what do great organizations do or great leaders to create psychological safety, to create that culture where it's okay to not get everything right all the time? 
Well, I mean, there are certain organisations that I'm not saying um, there's anything wrong with this, but they do create mini mantras, if you like. I mean, Google is a case in point, you know, where I think fail fast, the equivalent is we've just not succeeded yet, like Thomas Edison, you know, um, where the corporate messages uh, reinforce the idea that what we're looking for is experimentation, um, not perfection every time. We don't want, you know, the same mistakes being made, but we do want speed and we want people to collaborate around fresh ideas and get them into a business-ready format. In the past, a byword for such behaviour was 3M, um, you know, with the invention of the, the story about the invention of the post-it notes. You know, that was an accidental byproduct of something they were looking for that was different from the post-it. Mm -hmm. And suddenly someone recognised that there was actually value in the post-it itself. So, um, you know, company messages can certainly help. Um, but by and large, I think, again, senior leadership have a very key role to play in modelling the way forward on learning from experience. And, you know, right now, uh, one of the common messages going through leadership theory is around humility um, is around the notion of shared leadership, um, but particularly humility at the top, you know, being able to not walk around with a hair shirt, but, you know, be able to talk with people um, as equals, uh, even if there's a huge pay differential and responsibility differential, uh, recognise when decisions made at the top have not worked, uh, deliberately unpack why that is and, draw lessons from it, communicate with the organisation in ways that shows that top leaders are learning from the organisation. I can think of several examples where senior leaders um, hold regular calls with the whole organisation, um, maybe through mini cascades, but mostly um, they're scenarios where in a medium-sized organisation Everybody can dial in to a call on a monthly basis and, you know, using technology like Yammer feeds and so on so that the conversation can genuinely be two-way and real-time where people can uh, share, problems, share problems and look at possible solutions, look at ways in which uh, opportunities might be potentially worked up into projects. And that requires humility on the part of senior leadership, you know, not to just resort to the usual town hall delivery where this is what the executive team or the board have decided and we're, we're selling it to you to get your buy-in. This is more to do with developing strategy and implementing strategy real time with people so that they have the information they need to take decisions at their level. And again, it's that thing about executives recognising that not all decisions should be taken by them, that decisions to be effective in terms of speed, appropriateness, etc., need to be taken at the right level, which is as low down the hierarchy as you can get, really, even down to self-organising teams. But those shouldn't be done in a vacuum either. This is where communication, design linkages between teams, uh, deliberate 
processes that are put in place to enable sharing between teams and people holding each other to account for sharing information across teams. Those are things that great leaders make sure are happening. So it's uh, leadership using itself, as it were, as an instrument to demonstrate how the organization moving forward can learn and can improve and can innovate if it doesn't rely purely on the success formula of the past. Linda, you, you've shared with me what I, what I love about you is you're not just doing research and writing books, but you're out there in the field with uh, companies day in and day out. And I'm an engineer. I spend a lot of time working with engineers. You've shared some stories of me of working with um engineering firms. And um, Edgar Schein, who I've had the great privilege of getting to know, talks about cultures of industries. Do you think that there are, when you think about agile organizations, do you think that there are industries that have more of a propensity to be more agile and maybe some that are more challenged in being agile? Yes, I'm sure that um, the bigger and more complex in terms of uh, size, organization, history, the, the type of organization is, particularly in public sector organizations, um, the more challenging it can be but to, to aim for agile. Um, but I've been surprised, positively surprised, about how nevertheless it is possible for institutions within some of these complex setups to become more agile, um, even as part of a bigger whole, which isn't. Um, and if I think about the usual suspects for agility, software firms, for instance, yes, in a sense, they've, they've learnt to be agile and to design themselves the capability to become agile um, over the last 20 years, you know, through the development of, um, you know, much greater customer focus and all the practices and values that underpin agility, um, that they learnt from many of the problems of previous methods of working, they've learnt didn't work and that agility was what was required in their sector. Mm -hmm. But as I say, those are the usual suspects. Interestingly, you mentioned construction and civil engineering and many of the firms that have traditionally um, moved into major projects or programs of work um, for, for significant clients. The challenge has always been um, actually we employ highly skilled, um, technically, scientifically uh, people who are brilliant applying their skills in particular ways to customer projects and customers or clients are usually not that bothered about how you do the work, provided you do the work outstandingly. I've noticed that in some of the civil engineering companies that I'm working with, uh, actually that old model of thinking about how we work has shifted significantly in the last few years, just the last three or four years, where um, many of the conventional client groups who have huge sums of money to spend on building a new resort or building new hospitals, um, their sources of funding have become much more restricted. 
and um, what those buildings or those structures have to do has become more demanding. And it's been actually quite traditional sectors like civil engineering and construction who, in my view, are starting to do more of the innovative work and the more agile work um, where they've spotted that their current model is unsustainable. The challenge is it's no good just one or two people in those firms noticing that actually the client world is changing. The whole organization has to notice it too. Mm-hmm. And as I say, that's where, particularly for traditional sectors, um, such as civil engineering and construction, the challenge is to bring both the executive team and the board uh, into awareness of the potential threat to doing nothing, which is always a threat. The more successful you are at what you do, the more likely it is you'll believe that you've got the recipe and all you need to do to make the cake is carry on following it. So, you know, there is that issue about winning over hearts and minds, but not by selling that to people. People have to see it for themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think some of the more innovative work that I'm noticing is where management teams, once they're on board by having been exposed to some of the shifts, maybe through scenario planning, maybe through, um, I don't know, benchmarking visits to other sectors which are noticing changes that they're having to adjust to, maybe by long and meaningful talks with current clients um, about where their trends are going. Um, It's then the challenge of uh, getting other people on board and starting to um, apply some of the practices um, derived from agility, whether it's lockdowns or, you know, um, some of the communication processes that start to gradually get people aware that change is needed and then gradually bring people into working up what some of those changes might mean what they how they might look um, so that you gradually build build some ownership amongst people in the organization but as i said where it works uh, i think civil engineering and construction in particular can be outstandingly agile um, where it takes too long and where there's um, too much opposition from senior management, the risk is there for firms that they'll be ultimately swallowed up by others um, who are more agile and can see an opportunity to do things better and acquire that technical expertise. Yeah, it's it's so interesting in my dissertation research I studied 126 business units in 47 corporations. Wow. And the most agile industry in my study was the construction industry, the yeah. contractors. Yes. Um, we won't talk about who some of the lower ones in the, in the pecking order were, but, um, but, but yes, I think your point about, you know, some people, I see this where some people are starting to get it in an organization, but to get that critical mass, to get, senior leadership buy-in and to make commitments to really changing the culture to be agile, um, it, it takes a certain amount of momentum within the organization. Yes, and it takes um, certain people to be convinced that even if we don't know exactly what the future looks like, 
Nevertheless, we do need to change. We do need to move more quickly. We do need to innovate more. We have got capabilities in different parts of the business that we're not optimizing. It takes some people to be convinced of that, to convince others. And I've noticed that where you get scenarios where mostly people are convinced at the top, but there are one or two naysayers, particularly the naysayers who are hugely influential on other parts of the business, say the finance director or whatever, you might as well uh, pack up and go home. And I've found that the most powerful way of unblocking um, agility is where the top players have the courage to challenge and, if necessary, force out those who are ultimately going to undermine the direction of travel towards agility, um, however good they are. I can think of one chief executive who did this with a, a director who was probably the most significant expert in his particular technical field uh, that certainly the company had ever had and probably globally. And so there was a huge risk because this chap was highly regarded by um, his own team, which was a vast business unit or set of business units and um, within the industry. And the chief executive took the risk of challenging this chap to either get on board finally, having had plenty of chance to think about it, or leave. And actually, the chap, the director, decided to stay. And when it came down to it, whilst he did have some legitimate fears and objections, it did seem that his real reason for objecting was the fear of loss of his own power and his own worry about his capability of moving in the direction of travel anyway. And he was actually helped a lot by some coaching to, to learn how to think differently, um, to, to learn some new skills. And he put some of those skills into practice, albeit in a fairly clunky way to begin with. And the fact that he did that and persisted with the direction of travel um, had a very powerfully positive effect on the rest of the organization, far more than, you know, company mantras would have done. Um, it was the story about how this chap changed his way of operating and the benefits that started to come as he did so um, that had, a, as I say, a galvanizing effect on the rest of the organization. And I agree with you that the real challenge is to scale up uh, agility beyond the areas that you would typically see um, some agile practice going on, such as in R&D departments or even in you know some functions like marketing. Um, where traditionally, as in construction, many of the contractors have been used to working within very challenging criteria, um, you know, to do with whether it's design and build or whatever, where they've had to integrate all sorts of skills to both deliver the design and the robustness of the construction within a tight budget and time scale in a way that in the past, some of those different elements of criteria would have dropped off. You know, you can have quality, but um, it will cost you. Um, so I think, you know, the innovativeness um, that's coming 
from some of those very strong constraints in a way uh, has put certain industries now in today's world, ironically, at a slight advantage with regard to agility over those that have actually had things easy for the last 20 years. And as I say, functionally, the challenge is where you've got parts of an organization that are allowed to play at Agile, to have different team structures, to dress differently even, uh, to work differently, you know, remotely or whatever. Um, The challenge is to think more broadly about how would it work if we started to expand this, take what works, learn from what doesn't work to the rest of the organization to try and get more of the benefits of customer focus, um, flexibility, something that works for employees as well as for the organization. Because obviously it's easy to close buildings and have people working from home and save costs that way, but not if you're imposing it on people and they don't have the um, the skills or the resources or um, comradeship um, that maybe they need to be able to do their best work. These things need to be thought through in a way that, that actually allows more than one objective to be achieved through anything you do. Linda, I could talk to you for hours about agility. I really, I mean, you're just, you know, triggering more thoughts about talking about skills and everything. I definitely think we're going to need to record another podcast. I want to encourage people, your book, The Agile Organization, as I said, it's, um, I've read, I don't know that I can say I've read every book on agility, but through the course of my PhD, I certainly read most of them. And I I just find yours to be very direct and um, but very comprehensive in your framework and how you think about agility and the fact that it's grounded in all your work um, with organizations out there in the real world. I just have a huge amount of respect for you. So, Linda, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure, Gretchen. Always, always a pleasure. Interested in hearing more? Visit us at greatnessconsulting.com. Thank you.